So there should be some Bibles around you. You can swipe open your phone. We're in James chapter 2 today. And we're, we are back in this series called The Awakening. We took a little break for Christmas. And we're in a new year now, if you didn't know. And New Year's are all about resolutions. And resolutions are about practical changes that you are making in your life. Like, you're going to be healthier, you're going to eat better, you're going to go to the gym more, you're going to pray more, you're going to read the Bible more, you're going to stop cussing at people while you're driving and they cut you off, you're going to stop picking your nose while you're driving because I've driven next to some of you and I know that you do it and you need to stop, it's disgusting. It's a good resolution to have. And if resolutions are about practical things, then there is no better book for us to be in than the book of James, because it's incredibly practical. However, something that has been very exciting for me to discover in the book of James is that throughout, while it is very simple and while it is very practical, there is a golden thread that is woven throughout the book of James. And the key to discovering the meaning of James is to find this golden thread that is woven throughout this entire letter. And when you find it, what you will see is that, see, before finding this golden thread, you read James and and it seems very practical, but it seems like a behavior modification thing. Like, okay, let me change the way that I'm doing this, or let me change the way that I'm doing that type of thing. And when you do that, what it does is it changes you on the outside, but leaves you still dead on the inside. But when you find the golden thread, it's like life has been brought into you and it is welling up within you and then it bursts forth out of you into a new life that you are living that has been changed from the inside out. And so if you're going to understand James, you've got to understand that here's what he's doing throughout. He's assessing the way that you're living. He's assessing your behaviors He's assessing the symptoms of what you do on the outside to understand what's going on in your heart. So sometimes doctors, to know what's going on inside of you, they'll do a blood draw. But sometimes you need a doctor that looks at your symptoms and can tell what's going on with you without a blood draw. In fact, sometimes that's what you need. And spiritually speaking, There's no blood draw for us to know what's going on in our heart. God is the only one that knows that. So what James is doing is he's being a spiritual doctor for us. And he's saying, look at the symptoms in your life. And here's what it's telling you about your heart. And today he looks at our symptom and diagnoses us with something called the sin of partiality. And it's a pretty hidden sin and it's a pretty vile sin. And it's probably messing with you now. So let me read to you James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And not the rich, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? 
Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now first, what I want to do is I want to deal with the rich and the poor man because it's likely that's what you're focusing in on. And if you're focusing in on that, then it's distracting you from the actual real meaning of why James is telling us this. So the mistake that you would be making is be thinking, okay, well, according to James right now, that it, it is a bad thing to be rich and it's a good thing to be poor. Now, throughout the Bible, the Bible will say some negative things about the rich, but also we see that the Bible sees people like Abraham and people like Moses and people like David and Solomon being blessed by God, and that is why they are wealthy, because of their blessing. So, what is the answer What is James doing here? What is he meaning here by this rich and this poor talk? And when we look at the Bible from a whole, what are we supposed to make of this? Well, two things. First, generally speaking, the the rich will often not be as reliant upon God. Because being needy has a way of making you realize that you are in need and you reach for something that is outside of you. There you arrive at God, and you also find that you are spiritually needy, so you rely on grace. However, that's not always the case. What James is doing is he's borrowing from, lit- from, from wisdom literature that has been written before, and he's speaking in generalities. So the, basically, the Bible warns is that money could be a good thing or a bad thing. It depends on the heart of the person who has it in their hands. But that's the first thing. Second thing is... James is just setting up a scenario or circumstances that could have been real in the church of that day to reveal the real sin behind it all, which is the sin of partiality. And so he sees how rich and poor interact together and how we see them, and he points out something going on in our heart. And the sin of partiality is likely running rampant in your life, and it is causing a slow decay within your heart. And you've got to do something about it, or it's going to continue to happen. So the sin of partiality, what exactly is it? Well, partiality literally means to receive someone according to their face. Meaning you are looking at the outside of them, you're looking at their outward appearance, and you're making a judgment call about them by the way they look, by their status, by how much money they have, by how much success that they have in their life. And what you're doing is you're, you have things that you want in your life. And you look at them, and you see this person, and you say, they could help me get what I want. So immediately, you have much more favor on that person, and you treat them better, and you see the poor person, or the person who can help you get what you want in your life, and you neglect them. It's like there's a lust inside of you for something. And you look around at people and you measure their worth based on how much they can help you get what you want. And James wants us to know that that's disgusting. There's a fascinating story in the Old Testament, and I think this is missed a lot because there's a play on words. So Samuel is a prophet in the Old Testament. And God's people start saying, we want a king. We don't have a king, we want one. And God's like, this is not a good thing. And they're like, we want a king, we want a king. And they bellyache about it. And finally God says, okay, fine. You want a king, I'll give you a king. And I'll give you the type of king that you're looking for. And so Samuel, the prophet, is called a seer. It's another name for a prophet. Only throughout the Bible, this word seer is really not used very much at all. But it's used an obscene amount as Samuel is looking for a king. Why? Well, 
Let's, let's play on words. Seer. So Samuel arrives at King Saul, the future King Saul, and here's how he's described. A head above the rest. In other words, in a crowd, he's able to be seen. And his stature is, I mean, he's, he's built well. He's handsome. And they say, this is the guy. This is the one we should be looking for. This is the one that's like a king. So they bring him and make him their king. Only the problem was he's the wrong kind of king. He ends up being a failure. And God's like, let's try this again. So Samuel goes out to go look for a king that's after God's own heart. And God brings him to the house of Jesse, who is King David's father. And then watch what happens. Let me read this to you. So Jesse brings his kids out. Samuel looks on them, looks on the first son that comes out and says, Surely the Lord has anointed him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so this continues on. The next son comes out, not the right one. The next son, not the right one. Until Samuel says to Jesse, do you have no other sons? He says, well, we have one more. He's a shepherd out in the field. His name is David. So David comes in. David is the one, finally the one who will be a king after God's own and even still, the way he's described is by his appearance. It's, it's like we're missing it over and over and over again. And so what happened is the sin of partiality led Israel to choose the wrong kind of king. And it will lead you to, lose, to choose the wrong kind of king for your heart. It will lead you to follow into the wrong truth. And it will lead you down the wrong path in your life. Partiality is about using anything around you and judging it by its appearance and then being drawn to it by its appearance. So you take a job. The sin of partiality might lead you into the wrong job. It might look all beautiful and shiny on the outside, but what you find years later is you are miserable because of it. It made sense. Everybody said that was the right thing for you to do. But it turns out it was the sin of partiality in you that led you there. The sin of partiality will cause you to be friends with people that you should not be friends with perhaps. They will use you for their own gain. Practically speaking, the sin of partiality might cause you to choose the wrong boyfriend or girlfriend, based all on appearances. The sin of partiality might cause you to pick the wrong church, looking for a pastor who looks a certain way with a fog that comes up from the earth somehow, and there's this big beautiful show that's happening, and it might cause you to pick a church because of that. And I know you guys aren't doing that, because especially if you were here from the beginning, because we started out in a place that used to be a golf college. Literally on the ground, you walk in, and there's artificial turf. And the big joke was, I'm going to bring my putter to church today. And everybody kind of laughed, and I just held my head down like this. Um, and it's true a little bit today. I mean, we've got a nicer spot, but we're renting here. This isn't our place. Um, so if you're here, I mean, you're obviously not here because, well, out of partiality. And here's the other thing it will do. It will cause you to not be as great of a parent. Because not only are you looking at the outward appearance of other things or others, but you're trying to assess how others are seeing your outward appearance. And if you're very caught up with how others are seeing you, then you're going to want your kids to be a certain way. You're going to want them to be certain type of smart, 
good at sports, maybe a good musician, maybe good at whatever it is that they're doing, so everybody will know how great you guys are. And what's going to happen is your kids are going to feel that pressure. They're not going to understand it, they're not going to know what it is, but they're going to know something deep down that maybe they're not measuring up to what you have in store or the idea that you have for them. And they'll always feel that pressure and it will mess with them for their whole life. So, if you aren't supposed to weigh outward appearances, what are you supposed to weigh? The heart. So here's our golden thread throughout the verses. You go back a few verses, what we saw just before Christmas, or the last verses just before this verse, and we see James talking about the Father. And he talks about a heart that is defiled, but then he talks about a heart that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. And the point was that when we have a heart that we ought to have, the Christian ought to have this heart that has adopted the heart of their Heavenly Father, and the Heavenly Father looks out in the world and judges the heart. But not only this, the Heavenly Father looks out and sees orphans and widows. That's the first thing it says, verses we just looked at last week or last month, whatever. And the point was, God is not concerned with outward appearance. In fact, as a father, he sees orphans and widows who don't have a great outward appearance, and he goes after them. And that's what God does. Now, when I was in middle school and high school, I spent a lot of time in trouble, and it wasn't because I was a bad kid. I, I mean, I was caring. I cared for people, but like, I was put in this room where there's like 35 other people, and I got to be quiet for eight hours and I can't talk to any of them when all I want to know is what's going on in their life. So, so I talked to everybody, and I kept getting in trouble for it. Um, and again, I wasn't a bad kid, but I found out in middle school that I had the second most lunch detentions in school history. That's your pastor. And then in high school, um, I ran for school treasurer or secretary. I don't remember which one it was. And the head of the school told me that I wasn't allowed to run because I didn't represent the school well. Now, I don't know if, I mean, that would mess with a kid, but it didn't really mess with me, and, and, and here's why. Um, because my mom was always there, encouraging me because she knew my heart, and she would keep reminding me. And, and, and then years later, I go to some school sporting event, and I start seeing some of the teachers there. Um, and I'm there because I have family that are, that are competing in sports. So I get there, and I see one of my teachers, and he says, what are you doing now, David? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. He grabs his heart like he's about to have a heart attack, like he's got this really funny joke about, oh, you're a pastor now. Um, but some of the teachers that I talked to were like, oh, that makes sense. So why would some be so shocked by it and others not be? Well, because some of them took the time to know what's going on in my heart versus seeing some annoying kid who just can't sit still. Now, wisdom would say, I should have learned to be less annoying. That's true. However, wisdom also says, look at people and look what's going on underneath, look what's going on in their heart. And so when you weigh the heart, that brings you to the very practical thing that James does here. He says, when you're around someone who's rich, who looks successful, who has it all together, who has a gold ring, which means they're of high Roman status at the time. And when you're around someone who is poor, look at both of them and treat them the exact same way. 
Don't look at them and say, well, the rich person can help me get ahead in life. Look at them both and treat them equally the same. The same way a parent would look at two kids and weigh their heart and measure them by their heart, not by their outward appearance. And then James, so he, he goes on to reinforce this point by explaining that typically the rich are those who care nothing for you. In fact, what they'll do is they'll take you to court. They'll sue you, and they'll use their money and their power against you. Even though you are doing right, they will take everything that you have. Yet you're trying to earn their acceptance. He's not saying that that's what all rich people do. He's saying, let's set up a scenario. Here's how it typically works out. So again, he's strengthening his argument about partiality. The rich and poor is not the point here. The point is how we see people. So the first step to change is actually admitting that you do this. Now, we don't want to think that we do this, but we do. And if I'm going to tell you this. If you're going to go through the series and you're going to be changed by it, in fact, if you're going to come here at all and be changed, you've got to get good at something. You've got to get really good at the painful process of seeing your own sin. And the better you are able to enter into that painful process of seeing your own sin, the more you are going to discover the sweet grace of God. And it's going to be balm to your soul, and it's going to change you. That's what changes you, grace. Not this guilt that tries to get you to change the way that you're living. Not some New Year's resolution, but grace. But you only taste it if you are bold enough to withstand the pain of looking at your own sin. And so you just have to admit, it, admit this. That when you look at two people that walk into a room, whether it's here, whether it's wherever you go, and you see someone that you need something from that can help you get ahead in life, do you treat them different? And you typically do. And the irony is that what James is saying is that while you look at a poor person, and you say, they're going to just require something of me. But you look at someone who is rich or successful, and you're going to say, they can help me. Well, the irony is that in the end, the rich person will take more from you than the poor person will, according to what James is saying here. But we still do it. And, and here's why. Because we look at people like treasure boxes. And the bigger they are, the more drawn we are to them, and the better we treat them. And it's really hard for us not to show partiality. And here's why. This is our second point why we show partiality. Because you have goals in your life. And maybe you're not so ambitious, and maybe people are saying, oh, you need to have better goals. Well, everybody has goals. And it all depends on what you want. So think about that right now. What do you want most in life? If you could have anything that you wanted right now, what would it be that you pick? Picture it in your mind. Like, grasp hold of it. What is that thing? Now, when you've got it, imagine two people walk into a room. One person can help you get everything you want. And the other person is going re to require something of you. And they're going to be needy. And the other person can give you everything. Are you going to treat both of those people exactly the same? And if you're honest with yourself, the answer is you're not. It's really hard to not show partiality. There's a story about a church who really needed a pastor very badly. Their old pastor had left, and they were without a pastor for a very long time. 
And they searched and searched and could not find a pastor. And then finally, the team of people that they put together that would find the pastor finally found the right pastor. And the day came, the Sunday morning came, when the, finally that right pastor was going to show up. Everyone was eager to meet him, and everybody was ready. And the old ladies had cooked all a bunch of good cookies, and they were ready to give this pastor a hug and a kiss on the cheek. Only the pastor never came. They couldn't find him. And the service started. And as the service is starting, a homeless man walked into the church. Everyone said, oh no, not this Sunday. Not when the new pastor's coming. And this homeless man had a smell to him. And he could tell what it's like when you walk into somewhere and people look at you with a little bit of disgust, though they're being nice to you, with a little bit of something that makes you feel shameful, and he felt it. And then it came time for the sermon. And the homeless man stood up, went behind the pulpit, and removed his homeless man's garments, and underneath was a beautiful suit. And it turned out he was the pastor. And he knew that if he showed up, he would get all the cookies and, and the hugs and kisses from the old lady. But he wanted to see what they, how they would treat him if he came as a homeless man. If they would show him... This, as a homeless man, the same respect that they would have if he was their pastor. Do you find yourself not having that much time for people, but when someone who can really help you get what you want comes around, you're on that person like white on rice because you know they can help you get what you want. You know you do. That's the sin of partiality. And so how do we stop this? That's our third question, our third point. How do we stop showing partiality? Well, James says, Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And again, this is not that it's bad to be rich. The point here is that God goes to those who know that they need God and they approach God with nothing but need. They've got nothing to bring to the table. They've got no riches, they've got no honor, they've got no list of good works that they have done that's going to earn God's approval. They just come with nothing. So when you're physically needy, you stumble upon God and you realize you're spiritually needy. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So to be poor in spirit means that you are spiritually bankrupt. You're morally bankrupt. It means you bring nothing to the table. When you are, you are the cripple coming to the table, bringing nothing with you. No list of glorious things that you've done. No list of works. You, you are hobbling to that table with nothing but need. No matter, and, and, and no matter how much money you have, how successful you are, how beautiful you are, what kind of status you are, it does not matter. When you approach the table of God, you are in desperate need. And when you realize that, you go and you bow down before God the King and you say, God, have mercy on me and be gracious to me. And he lavishes you with grace and he lifts you up and he gives you a seat at that table. To be spiritually bankrupt is to be spiritually wanting. And when you come to him spiritually wanting, he lavishes you with grace and there is nothing that will give you more riches 
than his grace. It's not a bad thing to want. The bad thing is what you want. And the thing that you ought to want most out of all other things is God and his kingdom. And so if I asked you what you wanted most in life and your answer was not God, then you will run right down the sin of partiality because you will start seeing people and you won't be able to help it. Your heart will cry out for the thing that you want and you will see people around you and you will see them as people who can help you get what you want and you will use them. But if God is everything that you want... And you go to him, needy. He lavishes you with all the riches of his love and grace. And then there is nothing greater than you can have. No earthly riches will give you more than that. And when he's your greatest want, what will happen is, it's like you have found a diamond in the ground. And you wipe away all the dirt, which represents your earthly wants, and you sit there with this diamond that you've been given, this diamond of grace, and you run off into this new life. The same way your earthly wants fall to the ground like dirt as you hold the spiritual diamond of grace in Christ. And you run to this new life that is lived differently, where you're not looking at people like something that they can, that they can give you. And when you're that rich... In grace, you look at the rich and poor alike and you say, what can I do for you? Outside of Christ, we're all like Cuba Gooding Jr. and Jerry Maguire saying, show me the money. It's true. But in Christ, we have everything we need. And so we don't say that. We don't need anything. We have it all in Christ. So we could treat people like they're humans, not treasure boxes. Or maybe you have money and you are so exhausted of people coming to you, needing something from you. If you have someone in your life who is successful and has high status, just go and serve them and be a good friend to them. And you say, well, why would I do that? Because most probably what's happened in their life is people have just seen them as a treasure box and not as a friend. Or if you have someone in your life who has nothing, they've been seen like an empty treasure box, as useless, and so no one has gone to serve them. So just go and serve them and be friends with them. It's not that you are not to be rude to the rich or the poor, it's that you treat everyone like they're a human being. And just to make sure you get this, I just want to reinforce this argument and, and show you where James starts all of this. He has this phrase that he uses, the Lord of glory. And so, so it goes like this. Not only are you spiritually rich now in Christ, but he is the one that you begin to imitate. Because we always imitate what we love and we value most. And so this phrase, the Lord of glory, it's unique to James. It's maybe something he's made up. I don't, we don't know fully. But when you look throughout the New Testament, there's a great irony that is found behind this word glory. Every time it's referring to Christ, because look at him. Look at the life that he lived. It is anything but glorious by earthly standards. But the thing that the Bible keeps screaming at us about what makes him so glorious is that though he was king of kings and lord of lords, and though he himself is the great treasure of heaven, he comes down 
and empties himself of glory for us. Because he wants you. You are his want. And we follow after this pattern. And this is the great demonstration of his glory, that he's willing to do this. The thing that makes Jesus the most glorious is not that he's king of kings and lord of lords, but he's willing to lay all of that aside to get us to be stripped of glory, and that's what makes him more glorious. Let me read to you. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, so we're imitating him, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though... He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The greatest evidence of Christ's rule in your life is that you follow this same pattern. We always follow and imitate what we love and want most. And if we want him the most, then we will follow this pattern and we will, we will, not, we will not be concerned about getting the riches and, and glory of this earth because we have so much in him already. And if you understand that, then you'll humbly serve others around you and won't see them as treasure boxes that are filled that you can take stuff from, but you will see them as treasure boxes that are empty that you can fill up with love and with grace. And why? Because that's what he's done with us. He, having all the riches of heaven, came down and was emptied on the cross. He took all of what's in our treasure box, which is sin and death, and he put it upon himself on the cross in order to give us the riches of his love and grace. So we follow that same pattern. And when we look at people, we look at him, them the same way he looks at us. He has everything he needs. He just wants us. And that's the same way we look at people. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would make us a church like this. And you would help us. You would help us as we go to our workplaces. You would help us as we go out into the world, in our friendship groups, in, in, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and we would stop seeing people like treasure boxes that have something to offer us, but we would see people as people that have been loved by God and have come, and God has emptied them of their sin and of, their, of death and has filled them with the riches of his love and grace, and that we would join you, God, in that cause of filling up people with rich Riches of love and grace. God, help us be people like that. We need your help, but we can't do it without you. And we need right now, most of all, to see that you've done it for us. And that's why we can do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best ways to show that you are in need is through communion, the Lord's Supper.
Because you're coming hungry. You're coming emptied. You're coming needing to be filled with love and with grace. And communion is about a story. It's about the story of God coming, giving his life, emptying himself, and bringing his kingdom. And here's what happens in communion. When you participate in communion, you're saying two things. You're saying, one, I'm a sinner and I need grace. But you're also saying, I believe that this story is true. And every step that you make your way up here is you being swept up into the story. So it's not just a story that you watch from a distance, but you are in a divine drama and you are actors in this divine drama and you are walking, out in, walking up into it. And it's all playing out. Not just before you, but around you because you're in the story. So when you participate in this, you say, I believe this is true. So I'm going to pray for us. Um, we're doing communion a little bit different now. Since COVID, we have these little, uh, I don't even know what they are, these little plastic things. You open them up and there's a little wafer in there and there's juice. There's gluten-free bread in the baggies if you are gluten-free and need gluten-free bread. Okay? So let me pray for us and then I will tell you how everything happened the night Jesus was betrayed. God, we pray now that your spirit would be with us. And through your spirit, Jesus, that you would be present among us. That you would dwell in the halls of our hearts. And that as we eat and we drink, that we would be nourished by the truth of this story. God, bring us into you. Bring us into the story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.